Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome everyone to episode 19 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the ninth episode of season two. This one is all about Queen Iona I of Aniquis and the Tower to the Heavens. And here's a quick rundown of Iona I. She was daughter of Sendia II and was born in 265. She ascends to the throne in 331 at the age of 66 and thereafter reigns until 335, when she dies aged 70. She has five children. Another short reign, but it has one significant event, something that stemmed from the Anarchist family's strength and weakness, ambition of the overweening kind. Most of what I've gathered about Iona's short reign comes from a recent book called Queen Iona I, which accurately describes its contents without exciting the readers too much. It's by Helena Ponsonby, Emeritus Professor of Anarchistian History at the University of Malsingham. It's a pretty dry read, but as I couldn't find much at all about Queen Iona in the primary sources I can refer to, and Professor Ponsonby obviously has access to much more, given the voluminous bibliography, it's going to form the basis of this podcast. And if anyone's interested enough to search for the book, it's published by the University of Melsingham Press in 2018. And don't forget to have a look at the bibliography. I know most people skim over bibliographies, but this is the quirkiest example of a bibliography I've ever seen. It has all the proper academic form citation for texts and other sources, but against each one, Professor Ponsonby attaches a star rating and a one-word review, as if she were on Goodreads or something. An example against good old Dromka's The Monarchs of Anarchist. She has four stars and a single snarky comment. Uninspired. Worth a laugh if you're into humorous bibliographies. After her mother's dark and bloody reign, Iona was welcomed to the throne on the basis of, well, anyone would be better than the last one. And to an extent, that was true. Iona had lived apart from her mother from a relatively early age, unhappy with Sendia's brooding, black moods and barely restrained murderousness. She'd probably seen her mother's legendary rages firsthand, and discretion being very much the better part of valour, especially after Sendia took the crown and had the unfettered power of life and death over everyone, even royal princesses. As Queen Iona, she made quick work of distancing herself from her mother, she immediately issued hundreds of royal pardons to poor souls who were in the royal dungeons. When I say poor souls, in some ways they were the lucky ones who were still there when Queen Sendia died. The unlucky ones were the ones who'd taken the journey to the block before the late Queen passed. Iona also declared an amnesty to all those who'd fled Anarchist before they could be accused of whatever crime Sendia dreamed up for them. The notable exception was for the murderers of the Hotchian heirs, the three small children of King Hotch who'd disappeared from the country villa where they'd supposedly been cared for by Queen Sendia. By this time, Sendia's story that they'd been killed in an attack by raiders from the wilderness 
was widely scoffed at, and the finger pointed fairly and squarely at her. Iona never accepted these charges, but neither did she deny them. Ambition in anarchists appears to be embedded in their genes, along with the propensity for good looks, charisma and courage, with a few notable exceptions. This drive is mostly expressed in a lust for power, with the crown being the ultimate prize, but it has found expression in military leadership, avarice for riches and mercantile influence, and occasionally in more peculiar ways, as it did in Iona. Upon her coronation, nothing about the 66-year-old Iona suggested that she had anything odd about her. She was regal, stately, and striking of looks with long silver hair that she often wore in intricate braids. She was gentle where her mother was cruel, generous where her mother was parsimonious, patient where her mother was quick to anger, thoughtful where her mother was precipitous. The advisory council, what was left of them, heaved a sigh of relief, and the people thanked the gods. Iona's first proclamation, however, raised a few eyebrows. An Anaquistian monarch's first proclamation is always a matter of interest, and it's traditional for it to set the tone for the monarch's reign. An indication of their outlook, if you like, signifying what the monarch thinks is important. Previous monarchs have proclaimed extra funds for the army, for instance, or announced delegations to go to this realm or that, an indication that relations in a certain direction are a matter of importance. Queen Iona's first proclamation, read in the throne room of the palace in front of a nervous but brave audience of courtiers, military leaders and senior ecclesiasts from the temple, announced a building program, which no doubt inspired polite applause. A building program certainly wasn't unknown as a first proclamation, especially municipal infrastructure uh, from a monarch keen to curry favour with the commoners, so all was well and good on that score. The expressions of curiosity and bafflement, no doubt, grew as Iona went on to detail her plan for a single, immense building, a tower that would require eye-watering funding and extraordinary amounts of labour. She finished by putting down her scroll and eyes shining, declaring that this tower would be the grandest building in the entire world below the war in the heavens, and it would reach to the heavens themselves, the better to help the gods above in their eternal war. As you might imagine, this caused some consternation among those gathered in the throne room, a reaction that was mostly subdued given the reaction the previous monarch had to any consternation over her pronouncements. The concern wasn't simply caused by the idea of a building a tower to the heavens. It was prompted by the matter-of-fact manner in which Queen Iona outlined the project, as if it was simply another structure that just happened to have the royal patronage. Why, if she wanted to go knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, what was the big deal? Softly, softly trod those in the royal court, so no immediate objections were raised, and, indeed, moderate cries of, hear, hear, greeted her announcement, assuring the Queen that she had the backing of the nobility. Queen Iona's first step was to assemble a board of construction, the people who would be in charge of such a massive build. She gathered who she could from the naval base in Miro, those with good engineering and architectural skills. Then she sent delegations to all the major realms and city-states around the continent, looking for the best and brightest. Aware of the difficulties of constructing anything that 
could actually reach the heavens, she tasked the upper echelons of the hypergeum to nominate adepts who could turn to the idea of magically reinforcing and enhancing the structure. Revolutionary means would have to be found and she was prepared to sponsor those with the right sort of genius. A tower of such immense size couldn't be built inside the walls of the stronghold, constructed as it was over the massive excavation that was the hypergeum. And so a special area was found to the west, just outside the walls. The fact that Lowtown had wrapped itself right around the stronghold by this time meant that the area Queen Iona thought most suitable was a neighbourhood, jam-packed with dwellings. As was the case with much of Lowtown, this wasn't an area that had been neatly planned. It was a higgledy-piggledy tangle of streets, lanes, drains, a filled-in canal and many, many squeezed-in houses and tenements, shops and workshops, inns and eateries. The numerous inhabitants of this crowded and rambunctious part of Lowtown had the misfortune to live in the area that Queen Iona could see from the window of her royal bedchamber. And thus, she sought it most suitable as the location where her fabulous tower was to be situated and so the existing structures needed to go. The inhabitants of this part of Lowtown naturally had different ideas, but their protests went unheeded. When the workers moved in to demolish, very few of the inhabitants had actually moved out, and a stalemate ensued for a few days until the army was called in. After negotiations were fruitless, soldiers went door-to-door and physically removed people. Two deaths were recorded, but many injuries must have been sustained, particularly among those who resisted most vehemently. Eventually, though, the district was cleared of people and then cleared of buildings. Anarchistian monarchs of this period were never overly conscious of needing the approval of the people. They were the absolute ruler, after all, and if the people didn't like it, tough. Some went out of their way to curry favour, but more for the cheering and the adulation because even an absolute monarch likes an ego boost now and then. Disapproval, though, really didn't mean anything, and there's no record that Iona ever considered the opprobrium that began to grow among the commoners. The aristocrats, the nobles, while unconvinced of the wisdom of the project, were generally on side, as many of them benefited from building and labour contracts that sprang from the build. Iona devoted herself to the project to the exclusion of everything else. She delegated military matters to the commanders, financial matters to the treasury, and everything else to the advisory council while she pored over daily reports from the builders, the transport teams and the suppliers, grilling them over the smallest detail. The construction of the Tower to the Heavens, as it became known, required gearing up in a number of areas. Several quarries had to be opened to supply the right sort of stone for the foundations, for the walls and for the buttresses. Getting the stone from the quarries to the building site needed specialist haulage teams and several roads that are now used for general traffic into the far-flung parts of Anaquas were first laid down in Iona's reign. And of course, these required road construction crews, surveyors and logistics of their own. The tower presented many challenges to the builders, not the least was that Iona had a vision from which she wouldn't be dissuaded. She didn't want to squat an ugly tower. She wanted something slim and elegant, a needle reaching up to touch the sky. It also had to be capable of being a vertical thoroughfare, so she could send thousands of troops to come to the aids of the gods in the battle of the heavens. 
These two demands are pretty much contradictory, and the engineers in charge must have pulled their hair out when first confronted with them. Compromise, however, wasn't in Iona's lexicon. She had a vision, she was queen, and so the vision would be implemented as she had seen it. Oh, Iona also had one more demand. The tower was to be built as quickly as possible. No shilly-shallying here, and if money and resources had to be diverted from other parts of the anarchist economy, so be it. Minor annoyances, like more raids from the interior and a pretender or two, one fascinating young woman received some notoriety by claiming that she was Iona and so was her sister, before becoming a song and dance team. Well, these didn't divert Queen Iona's attention, and she harassed the hypogeum until special lamps were produced that could illuminate large areas. The actual magical method for producing these was lost shortly after Iona's reign, but once situated on large tripods or poles, they enabled construction gangs to work 24 hours a day in shifts, something that was unheard of in Anarchistian history to that date. The grumbles from the evicted commoners were joined soon by mutterings from the nobles. The raids from the wild people of the interior were causing stock and property losses among the landed aristocrats, particularly those with large properties well away from the city. Those who had benefited from the construction project at first were finding that promises made to other clients weren't able to be fulfilled and they were feeling pressure from all sides. Among both the commoners and the nobles, more and more unhappiness stemmed from the feeling that Queen Iona was suffering from some sort of hubris, that trying to build a tower to the heavens was simply a case of foolish pride. It was easy to think, looking at the growing skeletons surrounded by the scaffolding and the hundreds of workers busy all over the structure, that Queen Iona was overreaching herself. In late 333, the Tower to the Heavens had reached a height of several hundred feet, much taller than any other structure in Anaquist, and Queen Iona announced that she wished to visit to inspect the progress at first hand by going right to the top to see how much more it had to go. Of course, the advisory council was alarmed, as were the engineers in charge. The royal personage on the building site? It wasn't only unthinkable, it was dangerous. Unspoken was the understanding that a few labourers falling from a dizzying height and perishing was acceptable in pursuit of a building that would be a world wonder. But to lose the Queen the same way? That would blot anyone's copybook, and no one in any position of authority would be looking for a good reference after that. Iona was adamant, though, which meant that building basically had to be stopped while the site was made safe for her. Anything rickety was double-reinforced. Anything rough was smoothed off. Anything sharp was covered. Anything likely to tumble and crush someone was made solid. A magnificently secure cage was constructed with a magically complicated series of cables and pulleys with three or four backup ropes, a system that would allow the Queen to step inside and be hauled to the then pinnacle of the tower, where time had been spent making it into a safe platform with guards, railings and barriers that could laugh in the face of an earthquake. These preparations took three months of continuous work, and if Iona understood that was three months taken away from the progress of the tower to the heavens itself, she showed no sign. On the appointed day, she, her retinue and her children processed to the building site, congratulated the engineers and the workers on their labours, and were hauled to the top of the tower. 
Iona marvelled at the view, noting that she could see further than she had ever seen before, and then she turned to scan the skies. Whereupon, a small frown creased her brow, and she noted that they still had a long way to go. Iona and her party descended in the cage and waved to the crowd. Iona and family got back into her carriage and left. Her entire stay had lasted just on an hour, but progress had been set back by months. That wasn't the only cost either, because one of the Queen's retinue was a casualty. A minor noble, not watching where he was going, kicked a large block of granite and broke his toe. Hearing of this, Iona bestowed on him the title of Lord High Stonemaster and granted him a pension for life. An obsessed visionary she may have been, but she occasionally showed signs of a sense of humour. It was towards the end of the third year of construction, in late 335, that the tower collapsed. Despite all of the planning and calculation, despite all of the attempts at reinforcing magic and scale embedding in buttresses, it simply couldn't bear its own weight. Several hundred workers were killed in the disaster, but accurate numbers were impossible to establish given the extent of the destruction. The dust cloud thrown up by the collapse was blown across the stronghold in Lowtown, reducing visibility to only a few paces for nearly two days before wind sprang up and cleared the air. Bells rang out across the city, sounding strange and muffled, and making many fear that the end times had come and that demons from above were on their way. Iona suffered what we might call a breakdown. At first she refused to believe that the tower had collapsed, despite the evidence of her own eyes once the dust cleared. She declared that the demons from heaven were playing tricks, obscuring the truth and trying to make doubters of Anaquistians. Then she flew into a rage, much unlike her usual calm demeanour, crying out about plots against her and attempts on her life before collapsing and having to be brought to her chambers. Healers from the hospital and those specialising in healing magic from the hypogeum were brought in but had no success in rousing the Queen from a state of strange insensibility. Her eyes were open, but she wouldn't talk or respond in any way. She could be led from place to place, but showed no volition of her own. If her arm was lifted, it would stay lifted when let go. It was as if her very self had left, and that all that remained was a shell of a human being. In the months following the collapse, during Iona's insensibility, if the advisory council wasn't mostly paralysed by the frightening state of the Queen, it may have instigated an investigation to try to get to the bottom what had happened, but that never eventuated. Instead, Anaquist was rife with rumours, even more than usual, if that can be believed. A finger was regularly pointed at some of the contractors and the nobles behind them, uh, those who may have been trying to make extra profits by using substandard materials. The engineers and architects whose plan the build was following were also subject to gossip, but very few actually believed they were responsible. Generally, they were felt to have done the best they could in the circumstances. One rumour that did develop legs was that the Karenites were responsible. Since these so-called heretics believed that the gods were the bad guys and the demons were the good guys, any attempt to help the gods wasn't just a bad idea, it was actively dangerous to the people of the world. If the bad guys win, 
they were going to come down and slaughter everyone, after all, at, at least according to the Karenite. Infiltrating the workforce wouldn't have been too hard for the Karenites, as the heresy appealed to a wide cross-section of the community, and finding appropriately skilled people who were true believers would not have been impossible. Careful undermining, substitution of vital materials and their work would be done. No proof was ever found of this, but the rumour lingered, and depending on your point of view, the Karenite cause benefited or was harmed by its possible involvement. Queen Iona I died six months later, at the age of 66, having never spoken a word since the collapse of the Tower to the Heavens. The Succession Iona had five children, the first born in 294, second in 296, third in 299, fourth in 301, and the fifth in 306. In 308, after vowing not to have any more children, Iona formally recognised the oldest, Halden, as her heir. But she bribes the others with huge grants of land and the title of Duke which hadn't been used before. This is the first time it's recorded in Anaquistian history. This actually formed a precedent, and over the next few hundred years, nobles campaigned and appealed for more titles. Apparently being considered above the hoi polloi wasn't enough. Most nobles wanted to be distinguished from their peers as well, a hierarchy within a hierarchy, if you will. More accurately, they wanted the chance to be considered better than their peers, better than the rest, creamier than the cream of the best crop. Of course, when some were granted titles and some weren't, it created unrest among the aristocrats, grumbling and giving some presumed grievances against a crown that should have known better. But you can't please everyone in something like this. When there's winners, there are losers too. And if they come from the entitled class, they're likely to take it badly. Some of these hereditary titles endure in Anaquist until the present. Duke, Baron, Marquess, Earl, Viscount, Count. No distinction being made between female and male title holders in Anaquist, unlike some realms in the world below the War in the Heavens. Except for Queen King and Princess Prince, which just goes to show that human beings have trouble with consistency. Other titles have fallen by the wayside, sometimes due to a family line going extinct or the very occasional renouncing of title. Sometimes these titles are revived, but they often fall into the dustbin of history for people like us to find fascinating. Titles like Equite, a title popular with rich families that could kit their people out with a war horse and all the equipment, or Esquire or Ultimo, titles that are no longer used in Anarchist. Queen Iona I. Her ambitions were, paradoxically, both heavenly and firmly of the world, aiming to bridge the two. Misguided but visionary, she was doomed to failure. That's all for episode 19 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Halden the Sleepwalker. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out 
more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.